You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. everybody. You are watching or listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previn, and joining me today for a special edition of the Hashtag Femme Doctor series is Rushmi Shrem. Hopefully I said that right, MD. And Dr. Shrem has practiced family medicine as a board-certified physician for 20 years, and she created more recently the membership-based practice Optimal Wellness, which we're going to talk about more. Welcome, Dr. Shram. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled. Likewise, I'm happy to have you. And um, one of the things we're going to talk about is how stress can wreak havoc on our bodies. And uh, that's something I'm personally interested in. And I know that that's something uh, important to a lot of other people as it's gotten a lot more attention, I think, in the community. So let's, let's start from the beginning. Did you know that you always wanted to be a doctor? I did not. I definitely did not. I toyed around with the idea. I love the sciences, you know, did some volunteering here and there, but it wasn't until, you know, around my second year of college or so that I sort of said, okay, I, I'm going to just like dive right in and do this thing. Why was that? Well, I had started volunteering at a psychiatric hospital, an inpatient psychiatric hospital. And I was just blown away by the transformation that people were having um, in this, and, and I now realize having practiced for so, so many years that that was sort of like just a magical little place and that not all inpatient psych hospitals are like that. Um, and so initially I, I thought I was going to be a psychiatrist really. And so that's, that's when, uh, my decision was made. Don't you see the worst cases though, in an inpatient setting? Absolutely. But then you can, when, when you're at rock bottom, you can only go up. True, true. And when you say that you realize that the place you were at was different, what do you mean by that? Well, for starters, it used to be an old TB hospital. So if you're not familiar with these, apparently what we used to do as a society uh, when we were dealing with tuberculosis was we would put them all away. And so, but it it was in this, yeah, I know I didn't either. It was in this gorgeous, you know, I went to uh, college at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. And so that's, you know, set in the Blue Ridge Mountains there. Um, And it was just in this gorgeous vista. It was in the middle of these mountains. It was all by itself. It had tons of trails everywhere. So it really was um, incorporating a lot of, you know, whole health principles that were kind of unheard of back then, right? So we, we meditated with the patients, we led meditations, we went for walks every day. So those were such a different perspective than sometimes like no windows, you know, like I've, I've worked in wards where it's like no windows, nobody can even tell whether it's night or day, you're, you know, you're stuck in this like pill filled world that doesn't help as many people as sort of incorporating all the elements of healing. That sounds terrible. It sounds like solitary confinement. Well, I don't, I don't mean to make it sound like that, but a lot of times when, when, when people are in not a great place, sometimes that can happen. 
So then what happened that made you change your mind about going into psychiatry? Um, well, family medicine was really um, on the forefront when I was going through all of my rotations, right? So when we uh, are in medical school, or at least back then, um, what we did was it was like full on, um, you know, academics for the first two years, although they've changed that now, thankfully. And then really, it was your third year when you started to rotate through. And it's almost sort of like, well, which personality do I fit is almost sort of what I started to look at. And right off the bat, I knew I wasn't, I wasn't going to ever be a surgeon. I hated being in the OR. I hated everything about it. And so I was like, well, that's a whole host of things that I know I don't want to do. Psychiatry was still in the mix of things, but, you know, it just so happened that the family medicine physicians that I was rotating with were like these rock stars. I mean, they were, you know, what was really attractive was like, they'd known these people for like decades, you know, and they didn't even need to really start off with what's going on. Like they already knew what's going on. And, um, and, and they knew their families. And so it was really more of the continuity uh, piece that really drove me to family medicine. That's cool. So then, and you had indicated in your um, profile on your website that you were an immigrant. You didn't come to the U.S. until you were about 12. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. Did you know how to speak English when you came to the U.S.? I did. I did. So I was born in Bangalore, which is, uh, or Bengaluru, it's a really huge city in South, in the South of India and South and I uh, lived with this huge family. So it was, you know, um, really a joint family. And so it was, you know, my grandmother and then really like a ton of my parents, you know, my dad's siblings. And then uh, there were always, you know, family members around. And it was like just a big, huge party all the time. That is so cool. So was it like a culture shock when you came here? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, in the throes of puberty and we moved from urban India to a very small coal mining town in southwestern Virginia. And really, you know, that was before the Internet. Right. And so the only exposure to the U.S. that I had had was a Sears catalog. Wow. Well, I don't know, maybe in, you know, suburbia, it's representative of, of a lot. <laughs> it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't representative. <laughs> How did you end up in Virginia? Well, we had relatives there. So I have an aunt and uncle and they sponsored my parents. And so they had been living there for several years. And uh, so that, you know, when you leave family, you go to family. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is usually how it happens. And have you been a lifer there? No, I went to middle school and high school there. And then I left to college and, you know, med school and all that. And so I haven't, I haven't necessarily been back except to visit. Where do you live now? I'm in Florida. I'm in Northeast Florida. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah. Okay. So you went further south. Yes. So tell me about your experience practicing family medicine, because I know that you and I have previously talked privately about some of the limitations of that. And, um, but tell me yourself about what that experience was for you. Uh, you know, as a, as a whole, it's an amazing, phenomenal experience. There's really nothing else like it, right? Because you end up 
forming these bonds with your patients and having uh, these incredibly deep and long relationships um, with not just them, but their family members. And it makes things a lot easier as far as, you know, the first visit is always like, who is she? You know, what is she about? Um, and then, you know, year number six or seven or eight or nine, they're like, well, you're the only one I trust. What do you think about this? You know, or this specialist said this, but I wasn't going to do it until I talked to you. And so, so a lot of it is just um, built on trust and stability and um, and really focusing in on the patient and really working with the patient. And you felt like you got to do that for a period of time and it satisfied that desire for a absolutely. while? Absolutely. And then what happened? Something changed. It did. And it was more something changing in me. There was, of course, external things changing, but, you know, we're always evolving. We're always moving towards some some kind of expansion. And for me, the one thing that I really started to notice was I never had any training in anything having to do with mind body stuff, but not even mind stuff, right? Like, and a lot, a lot of what was coming through the door for me, uh, because it, it just, ends up that if you're a woman physician, you're going to have a lot of women patients, right? And so, and a lot of them were moms like me, and they were really suffering from, you know, anxiety related issues, depression, and, and they were all kind of tied back to stress. And all I had were a, a handful of pills to prescribe, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, and it, it just wasn't, it was such a limitation and a limited view of what really we could offer. And, and, kind of in conjunction with that, I, I had two little kids back then and I was working a lot. My husband was working a lot and there was just this, like, what else is there in life? Like, yes, I'm doing the things I'm supposed to do. And there was just sort of like, what is going on? Um, yeah, it wasn't, yeah. it was like a low level burnout. It wasn't like one big, huge, massive, like, you know, mess, but it was, it wasn't great. Yeah. I, you know, I go to a lot of personal development events and, and coaching and things of that nature. And it's interesting. You never really see people in their twenties or even early thirties. It's always, I'm 45. So it's always people really in their forties or over. And I was started thinking one day, you know, are, are all the 20 year olds or 30 year olds, are they just not miserable yet? And I really think, you know, in, to, in some way, the answer is yes. You know, they haven't been alive long enough to have done something long enough where you, you know, in some way start to get a little maybe bored with it or dissatisfied with it or where you actually get so good at it that it just starts to become really routine. Mm -hmm. And I'm not suggesting that was your experience, but I know that's been my experience. So I can relate when you say that, when you say that, you know, something just after a while just wasn't working anymore. And it was like this low level burnout. You know, absolutely. Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head. And, you know, I have a coaching practice and, you know, a, a medical practice. And I was just thinking, as you said that, I think I have one woman who's less, who's younger than 40. Um, but really, the rest are 40s, 50s and 60s. And it's just an interesting, you know, evolution, right. And I do think we start to look around and go exactly like you said, there, there's got to be something more like there's something missing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I've had that experience too. I think I might still be looking for it a little bit too, but 
what I've learned by talking to my femme doctors is that it doesn't seem that your medical school education does focus at all on a mind body connection. Everything is about, well, this is how the body works and functions. And here's what it looks like when something goes wrong and here's how we treat it. And usually it's pills. Is that an accurate statement? 100% accurate, Christina. You're absolutely right on that. And in fact, I swear towards like, you know, my third year of med school or even residency, I was like, how can anyone possibly be well? Like there are so many things (laughs) that go wrong. Um, And so we really end up being, instead of being a healthcare delivery model, we end up being a disease care model, really. Like we're only able to, when we come out, if, if I'm being fully truthful with myself, we're only able to deal with, if you have this disease, I can help you. Yeah. So it sounds like you're not doing that, that anymore. You kind of, well, actually let's, I don't want to jump ahead too far. I mean, you, it sounds like you started to focus more on your own personal life about the mind body connection. Is that true? That's true. Yes. So tell me how you did that. I mean, did you kind of just start to look inward and and find ways to manage your own stress? That was it. Exactly. So I had been an intermittent meditator here and there. um, But really, my evolution, I think, began when I started to meditate regularly. And that was, you know, several years ago. And that's really when I think the expansion happened. And exactly like you said, when I started to look inward was really when the answers came. And what was your meditation practice then? Cause I would imagine maybe it's changed since then. So what was it then when you started? It, it was very much, you're right. It was very different. It was very much so like a guided meditation. And I think that's always a great place to start because, you know, our minds aren't used to just, you know, being in silence. And so really just started with some very basic guided meditations and just really tried to have myself stick to it for a while. And for anybody who's listening, who like me sometimes is like, I really want to meditate, but I don't have time. I mean, which does sound sort of ridiculous, especially when I say it out loud. Um, You know, what do you say to those people? Like, how can people just get started without feeling overwhelmed? Like, great. Now another thing that I have to do every day. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that I deal, you know, that I talk to my folks about all the time. And I used to say the same thing. And sometimes if I let my ego um, take over, she also says, you ain't got time for this. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, And really, I think of it as getting time back in terms of um, finding, okay, so just to, just to like name what meditation is sometimes, you know, it can have all kinds of different connotations, but the simplest way to think about meditation is just going from activity into silence. Like that's just it. Right. And so there are several phenomenal ways you can meditate. There's not one wrong way. There's not one right way. They're, they're all valid. And so when you kind of look at that, you know, just going into the silence, going into, you know, the quiet is um, valuable because that's really where a lot of our, you know, self-repair mechanisms for the mind and the body happen. And we've got studies to, to prove that now. And so what can happen? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So I've actually read things that the, when you meditate, I don't even think you have to do it for very long. It, there's actual measurable differences in your brain. 
there are actual measurable differences. You're exactly right on that. Even first time meditators start to show differences in brain level activity. So we start to go from, you know, kind of that uh, midbrain, sort of like the reptilian brain where we're in that fight or flight response, especially if we're feeling stressed out, we start to move things out into the frontoparietal lobe. Um, you start to see more activity there. And that's really where the kind of the, the big money is uh, when you can get when you can step out of the fight or flight and and really come into uh, come into your own self, and that's related to stress too, right? It is. Yeah. So let's talk about all of the terrible things that stress does to us and our bodies. Yeah. Give let's us some insight. Yeah. So I like to define stress too because it can mean all kinds of different things to different people. And so stress is um, just the perception of physical or psychological harm, right? So, yeah. so you can have the same situation and have 10 people in the same situation and they'll all respond differently uh, to that particular stressor. So it really is a very subjective thing and so hard to measure and quantify, but in the whole, we know that not just our country, but uh, as a planet, we have too much stress, like period. We just have too much stress. Um, that's that's like not up for debate, <laughs> it's, that's it. And so, you know, your question of what can stress do to us, mm -hmm. uh, we, we have studies on what stress can do to us, right? So we can have, if we live in a chronic stressed out state, right? So short periods of stress we can deal with, like we are hardwired to like, we're great at, you know, like if we're driving and something terrible is going to happen, um, it, you know, we have an acute stress response, we have to swerve and we have to whatever, like we're good with that, right? So what happens when something acute like that happens is our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure goes up, our pupils dilate, um, blood is, you know, really rushed into the skeletal muscles from the gut, for example. And, and that's to help us either fight or, or fight, right? Like we have to do, we have to make these decisions. It's helpful for us at those moments. Now, what happens is over a long period of time, there's this like chronic daily stress, chronic daily stress, chronic daily stress, right? And it can be um, from a whole host of things. And what can happen is your blood pressure can stay up. Your heart rate can stay up. You can really have poor blood flow to your gut all the time. You can have decreased immunity all the time. And that's really where you start to have a lot of issues with not just your body, but also your mind as far as health goes. But is it really stress or do we just think it's stress? Like I know people that just going to the airport, great example, you can just see the anxiety that's that I'm not going to name any names, but I have certain people that I know where going to the airport is so stressful for them. They get just anxious and, you know, the irritable and you could just see it, you know, and, and actually kind of stresses me out, but then you'll have someone else like, like me, for instance, I travel, well, used to travel a lot <laughs> till recently. And, you know, I've gone to the airport so many times. It's just sort of, you know, it's nothing new. I know how to navigate my way, you know, through security and all of that. Um, but then, you know, some people just have experienced stress and anxiety all the time. They're just always on high alert about everything. And then you get other people that are just like very chill all the time. So, so when you talk about stress, you know, why do we all have so much more stress than we used to? What's yeah, going great, on with that? 
Great question. I think, you know, there are lots of scholars that can answer it in different ways. And you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, you're pretty chill when you go to the airport, but you know, the, the person who's maybe going with you is, is really freaking out. And the other thing I thought was really interesting that you noticed was sometimes you even freak out because they're freaking out. And, and one of those, one of the really interesting points you brought up was that emotions are contagious, right? I mean, we know that. So if you're hanging around somebody who's always really chill and really happy, you kind of start to get that way. Um, and so that's, that's also important as well. And then you, you also brought up a really good point of no two brains are alike. That we're just, we're, we're, you know, we're dealing with a conditioned sort of system of how we grew up, what, you know, people around us thought about flying, maybe previous experiences, maybe, maybe it was traumatic. Maybe it was from watching too many movies or reading too many books. And really that's why it's just so subjective, you know, because each time I talk to some, like I have, I have probably had six or seven patients in the last you know, few years be like, well, can you measure my stress? You know, if only there was a way to do that. (laughs) There's not, there's not. Um, And so that's what makes it really hard to kind of get wrapping around, uh, you know, sort of the idea of it's, it's really a a non-quantifiable thing. Well, I I know you can't measure stress, but you can measure other things. And what are the other indicators that are largely associated with stress, um, you know, absent some other medical condition? That's right. Yeah. So when we have, when we live in chronic daily stress, what we also see is chronic inflammation, right? And so same thing, acute inflammation, you get a gash or cut, you know, we need the inflammation to, to heal that gash or cut end of story. But what we're living with, a lot of people are living with is chronic inflammation. And so we can measure a few of those things. And some of those can be increased cortisol levels. It can be, you know, um, decreased levels of, um, of, of helpful hormones actually. And so the problem when you start to like, say, I want to measure this hormone or not, like our hormones are up and down, up and down, they're cyclical. So it depends on when you measure it. So it, so there's really not a great way, but what you can look at what is the downstream effect of chronic inflammation or chronic stress? And that's, you know, hypertension, it's coronary disease, it's heart attacks, it's strokes, it's diabetes. It's pretty much, you know, 85% of all of our chronic illnesses are related to chronic stress, chronic, you know, inflammation, making bad decisions about, you know, whether it's diet or sleep or, you know, whatever it is, it can, it can, that can all stem from that stress. So if somebody is, is listening that recognizes that they're in this constant state of stress, maybe they're not so receptive to meditation. What else can they do? Yeah, absolutely. There are so many other ways to release stress, right? And so, and that's really what I do in my coaching um, is I don't, I don't come in and ever say like, here's what I recommend for you. Like it's the, it's actually a very opposite thing of what a doctor might do. It's like, let's harvest what you think is meaningful for you and what in the past has helped you. And so quite honestly, a lot of folks start with just getting to exercise every day, or some of them will say, I just want to figure out how to get to bed on time. And so whatever is meaningful that that's going to, you know, everything is connected, right? If you're going to bed on time, you're going to have more energy. If you're exercising, you're going to sleep better. You're going to make better food choices. Like they're all connected. And so it really start somewhere, start small. I think a lot of people um, underestimate the real value of sleep. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. And so did I, Christina, I mean, for years, right. Um, even certainly going through medical school and residency, we, 
uh, after I graduated residency, they created um, uh, an 80 hour work week rule, meaning that you couldn't work more than 80 hours. But, you know, during residency, it wasn't unusual to work a 36 hour shift and have, you know, just a short period of time uh, to recover and then do a couple more 36 hour shifts. I mean, it was just sort of like sleep is for the week was the conditioning that I got from that. Um, and it's the exact opposite. It's not for the weak. It's for the strong. That seems know? impossible. I mean, I know how I am when I'm tired. <laughs> so I don't think anybody would want me making big decisions for them if I was that tired. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, they had been, that was the training that was very patriarchal. It had been like that for, I don't know how long and it wasn't going to change. Right. And so, um, luckily, you know, people did start to realize that that was really detrimental, uh, to actually training good doctors. And so I, I of course didn't get that benefit, but (laughs) yeah, but other people are, which is what matters. Yeah. So I know that you're plant-based. Were you not always plant-based? And, you know, when did that start? Yeah. So I um, would a lot of times eat dairy. Um, and over you say that last- like it's a bad thing. <laughs> um, so we could talk about dairy more than having to talk about it. But yeah, it, let's do it. Yeah. So it was, you know, probably five or six years ago when actually my, my kid who's now 16, she was watching a documentary and she was like, yeah, I'm never going to eat, you know, dairy ever again. And it wasn't like we were guzzling milk or anything. It was just, you know, cheese, like cheese is just so addictive. Um, and so (laughs) I love cheese, (laughs) eating a lot of cheese, um, and really just decided to cut it out. And, uh, have noticed so many things. Like I just thought like being bloated was part of my life and it, it's not, it's not, it was coming from the dairy. <laughs> really? The dairy. That's so funny because I just cut out gluten and dairy for maybe a week and it's incredible. I don't feel bloated. I, oh. I lost 10 pounds on the scale in one week. And I know that's not fat and I have never, this has never happened to me ever in my life. But I lost 10 pounds on the scale, just cutting out gluten and dairy for a week. Wow. And I had cheese yesterday. Uh I had quite a bit of cheese yesterday too. And I feel bloated today. Hmm. Deduction. I know. I I know. (laughs) Would you believe that my mind though is still like, oh, well, maybe you could just eat cheese, you know, once in a while. You know, there are so many, um, there's actually a whole book that's called the cheese trap that talks about, um, it's a, it's a, you know, cheese, uh, has a lot of things that are very addictive to it, which is why it's usually when somebody decides to go plant-based, um, it's usually the very last thing that they're willing to let go of. And you just have to work through that. Like, you know, I, I work with patients all the time that are, you know, trying to go plant heavy, plant-based, whatever it is, there's no judgment for me about it whatsoever. It's when you're ready and kind of like you, like you went for a week and you noticed you weren't bloated um, and then you ate it and now you're like, oh, I'm bloated. (laughs) Well, I was hoping that maybe, maybe it was the gluten that was, you know, the the magic um, ingredient or lack of ingredient that changed everything, but obviously it wasn't. I mean, maybe it was part of it, but obviously- I was hoping I could get away with, with eating dairy. <laughs> well, you know, Christina, you, there are a lot of plant-based cheeses now that to me taste almost exactly like cheese. Uh, so I would say, give them a whirl. I will. I thank you for recommending that. I will do that. I yeah. can't, it's hard for me to believe that there is good, but if 
if they are or they're close, I'll, I'll try them. Yeah, it's worth a try. I mean, you know, you'd want to go to like a Whole Foods or something to, to pick out a couple kinds that you might want to check out, but yeah. Well, maybe you can email me some recommendations and things that you like, and I Absolutely. can actually share that with our audience. So I'm sorry. I think I just totally cut you off. So you were talking about your plant-based um, introduction, right? So you cut out cheese first. Well, no, that was the last thing I cut out. Oh, last thing. Okay. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was raised vegetarian. So, uh, meat was really not like a big part of my diet anyway. Um, my husband, my husband, it really was, I mean, he was, he was raised in the South and they ate meat like three times a day. And so he plant-based now he is. Yeah. He has been for a little over seven years. Yeah. How'd you get him to do that? Well, I didn't, that's the thing, right? Cause for years, like it was like, you know, my kids and I, my girls and I, cause they decided they were like, we're done. Um, and I was like, okay, great. Let's figure this out. And, you know, he was still a little bit hesitant about the whole thing. So for a while he would still like, you know, I'd make all our meal and stuff. And I was totally fine with him, like grilling chicken or fish or whatever. I was totally fine with it. Um, and I think as he started to really see the mounting evidence that you never need animal protein, um, cause he's, you know, he, he, he works out a lot and he's just kind of like, you know, I was in that mindset. Yeah. Um, and really that's been several years ago, but you know, the key is to never, like, you can't force your opinions or your, you know, sort of like, you can't be that dogmatic. Uh, so it was the lack of dogma that actually he was like, Oh, all right. This is, this is actually really tasty. (laughs) Gosh, I just can't imagine never having a burger or a steak again. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, again, personal decisions, right? So um, as far as burgers go, and I'll email you this too, but you know, there are a lot of uh, really good plant-based options. I mean, they're not, I would not call them healthy. I would not call them uh, whole foods, but you know, as far as like environmentally, um, they are pretty phenomenally better for the planet. If you choose a plant-based, you know, like a, like a impossible burger or a, any, any plant-based burger, um, is going to just, you know, it's going to save, I don't even remember, but it's hundreds of gallons of water, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I will definitely look into that too. I drink almond milk and to me it tastes like milk, but you know, yeah. other people say, ew, that no, it doesn't. So I don't know if my palate is that sensitive. So I will definitely try that. Wow. Yeah, I will. Um, I just, I do feel better. And I know that we don't eat enough vegetables. I mean, whether, I guess if you're plant-based, you're eating a lot of vegetables, but if you're eating meat or, you know, dairy and those kinds of things, every time you eat the meat, it's, there's less room for the vegetables. And so I find that I'll fill up on the protein, but then I'm not really eating a lot of vegetables. And it seems kind of crazy to me that this, the American diet is completely lacking in vegetables. I mean, how do we not all die? (laughs) (laughs) That's such a good question because our bodies are incredible, right? So sometimes I ask, um, like I have these kind of almost like elite, not elite, but you know, they, they consider themselves to be high level athletes a lot of times, and they've never once thought about what, what they eat. Um, and I'll say, well, you know, what kind of car do you drive or whatever? Right. And generally, because I am in an affluent community, it's, you know, it's going to, the answer is going to be BMW or Lexus or something like that. Well, what kind of gas do you put in it? Oh, only the premium. Okay, great. Like, have you ever put in the crappy gas? Have you ever, even if it's available, would you put in leaded gas? 
no, no, of course I wouldn't. <laughs> and so it's like, um, you know, it turns out apparently they can run on really crappy gas. Um, it, for a long time, things just start to break, right? So you start to have illnesses and diseases, same thing. So our bodies can put up with a lot of abuse. And so it just depends on, it's always ready to heal. It's always ready to heal. So it's like, you know, if you have sort of like three or four bad meals or you feel like they're bad, um, then flip it. And guess what? You're gonna start to feel better right away. Well, do you follow Dr. Mark Hyman? I have, yes, but I don't, but I'm not like, you yeah. know, every day. Well, you, you're familiar with him though. I am. Yeah. Uh, he says he's, you know, supportive of plant-based um, and whole foods and, and things like that. And he says pe- a lot of people just walk around feeling crappy all the time and they don't even know that they feel crappy That's because true. if they actually ate healthy for a while, then they would know what it felt like to actually feel better. Oh, it's absolutely true. And I can tell you that from just having worked with patient after patient after patient, right? I mean, um, thousands of patients over the years and, you know, you just have to be gentle with them. And even now you just have to, you have to let them make their choices, but coaching can really speed up that whole process, you know, kind of really just pull out all of their motivators and, you know, take out limitations and all that. Um, and the most common thing I'll, I'll hear is, oh my God, I didn't know I could feel this good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I've noticed that when I'm eating better, I feel better, but then if I, you know, fall off the wagon and I eat, you know, a a bunch of carbs and in a short time, like, or really like if I spend one day eating carbs, probably not going to feel it two days. I feel like I got hit by a truck. I feel tired. I don't want to do anything. And then I realize it's from what I've been eating. And then all you can do at that point is just start eating better and just wait (laughs) for the after effects. That's right. Like that, like the very hungry caterpillar. You just wanted one large green leaf after that. Yes. Yes. Um, so I want to go, I, I do want to talk about your coaching, but I want to go back to when you really decided to leave fam- traditional family medicine. Was it yeah. like, I'm done. I'm out of here. S- submitted a letter of resignation. Like how did it go? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, in my mind, Christina, I said it 10 years ago. And, um, and then, you know, it's not that I hated my job at all. And, you know, I was working with some really phenomenal people in a really good, um, it it was, it was great in, in so many different ways. It allowed me to really make huge impacts on a lot of people. So there, there wasn't like I hated going to work every day or anything like that. It's just, I felt very limited and I knew that I could do more. And so I lived with kind of some of that for probably six or seven years. But in that time, I was educating myself on meditation and Ayurveda and, you know, just holistic types of ways. And I was using it every day. So, you know, even if I only had 15 minutes, I was still using it with my patients. And so it was kind of almost an an evolution in my mind. Although physically, if you looked at the space and what I was doing, it, it wouldn't have looked different. And then really it was a little over two years ago when I did, you know, I started to really have discussions with my partners and actually my husband, I was working with him as well back then. And so they all, they all understood. And so I turned in my letter and I was still there, you know, and I stayed until we found a replacement. So that ended up being eight months, which was a really long time. I just, yeah, it is a long time (laughs) because mentally you were done. I was so done and it was so draining because, you know, I mentioned how 
important these relationships were. And, you know, a lot of times, literally, like I had patients that were just coming in every two weeks because they were worried they wouldn't see me again. <laughs> so my schedule just got booked like full. And so it just, and I was writing a lot. Like I was, I was trying to write a lot of subtle information for whoever was going to take over after me. Cause you know, there's so much other than just a diagnosis, like, look, this person's already tried X, Y, Z and Z, and they're really sensitive to this. And so it was like these really long notes and it was, it was, it was, yeah. Well, did you already have the idea that you were going to start the optimal wellness organization or what did you think you were going to do at that point? I did. I did. I knew that I was going to do a membership based practice. And I knew that I really at that point was going to focus on, um, you know, when you when you leave a big organization like that, you have a lot of restrictions, right? One of the restrictions are, you know, some of the covenants have to do with where you can practice and for how long. And, And it's part of leaving a job. And so I had to keep a lot of that moving, moving stuff in mind for myself. And so I knew that I was going to start something that looked very different. I wasn't trying to make a carbon copy of what I left. So that's more of, that's more of a business and legal issue. That's right. Okay. So you were starting something very different and maybe now we, it would be a good time to explain what the optimal wellness practice is because I know I've talked about it a little bit with you privately, but for our viewers, what is it? Yeah. So it's a medical practice and I, you know, they're in direct contact with me. My patients are in direct contact with me. So there's not like a, a, an office manager and there's not like a six layers to get through before you get to your doctor. There's also not insurance either. So it's really uh, for people who decide to just invest in that relationship. Um, and if you think about, you know, insurance, they really, uh, family medicine, primary care, that's, they really don't pay very much for anything anyway. So it's really for, you know, if you're going to go get a procedure, you need to have insurance. If you're going to have them say, go to the hospital, you need to have insurance. But um, for, you know, what you look at, you know, kind of what we do, you really don't need it. So if someone wants to come to you, they're going to pay out of pocket. That's right. So what about the people that would have wanted to follow you and they might feel like, okay, well, I can pay for maybe, um, you know, routine visits, but if something bigger happens, that is, would be really a significant cost and I would want insurance to cover it, then they would have to go somewhere else. So, right. So I, so I, almost all of my patients now have insurance. So that's one thing. And what I offer them is completely different than just traditional family medicine. So what they're paying for isn't just to, for me to write them a script or just for me to send them off somewhere. And they do, I do check labs and I use their, they use their insurance, right? So there's the, they all have insurance period. So this isn't about abandoning your insurance. It's about um, what, what can you use as a complementary to what you're doing already? And it's really for people who are just sick of feeling bad and they're ready to start investing in themselves. And and your website says that it's a membership based practice. So it's yes. not like if I get the sniffles, I'm going to come and, you know, you're going to tell me I have a cold and I'm not going to see you again for six months. It's doesn't really work like that. Right. It, it really doesn't. I check in with them at least once a month, a lot of times, twice a month. And a lot of it is just coaching too. And so they're developing goals. Almost all of the folks that are in my practice now, they either come to me because they're trying to figure out how to go plant-based and it's always helpful to have somebody 
to guide them through something like that. And oh, by the way, I've got the sniffles too. Like I can deal with that for you. That's not a problem. And in fact, I just did that this morning. So uh, it's, or they're looking, actually, I would say probably 50% of the folks in there now, they want uh, some kind of guide for meditation and mindfulness. Uh, They've done the apps and they're ready to take it to another level. Yeah. So walk me through, like if I came to see you and and wanted coaching, like how, what would we, how would we get started? Yeah. So right now I really think three months, what I've found for sure is three months is sort of like, like the best time period. Now, sometimes people will come in for six months at a time, but it's a three month membership is sort of how I see it. And you would get six one-on-one visits with me. Plus I work, um, plus I do a two different kinds of meditation and I teach that as well. So I'll teach something called um, primordial sound meditation, which is a mantra based meditation as well as yoga nidra, which is a sleep based meditation. So we really work off of what you're dealing with. So the first get go before I enroll anybody is let's see if they're ready to start this process. Right. So they have to at least be in what we call contemplation. Like, yeah, you know what, maybe I can do those things. You know, maybe I can um, live with ease and joy. Maybe I can, like, I need for you to at least see that for yourself to some degree. You don't need to know how you're going to get there. Um, But if I'm talking to somebody and they're like, well, there's no way I'm ever going to quit smoking. There's no way I'm ever going to, you know, I'm never going to quit X, Y, or Z that's awesome. Like, you know, fine. That's okay. That's okay. But they're just not a great fit for coaching. So that's the first step. And then secondly, we sit down and we make a health vision and whole health vision is not just how do you want to feel? It's like, where do you want to be? You know, how do you see, you know, it has to do with personal development, professional development, relationships, communication, movement and rest, spirituality, all of that is health. And do these people have to be able to see you personally or can, you know, someone in California? No. Yeah. I'm doing everything virtually um, right now anyway with COVID. Okay. That's awesome. In your opinion, is, is it possible to have overall health and wellness if you don't have some sort of meditation or mindfulness practice? (laughs) Is this a personal question? (laughs) No, no, but I don't, I mean, you know, I don't know, maybe it's a hard question. It's just that, is it possible for someone to truly have optimal health if they don't work on the mind body connection in In some way? In my opinion, no, but here's the thing. It doesn't have to always look like you're in Lotus position with a mantra, right? You can Uh maybe, maybe you're a rock climber and that's, that's your meditative period, you know, so long as there's some experience, maybe you go for like two hour hikes in, in the woods and that's your meditative experience. You have to have that some kind of connection, whether it's to nature, the outside, you know, some kind of grounding, some kind of connection to silence, um, to really be in your most optimal mind, body, spiritual health. Yeah. And I guess the reason I'm asking is because I know there's so many people that if you say the word meditation to them, they're just like, you know, they, they imagine like what you said, someone in Lotus position and, you know, saying Ohm and wearing sandals. I, I don't know. You know, they, they think, no, that's, that's not my jam, but mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to look like that. So 
I don't know. I guess there's plenty of people that are healthy that don't do meditation, but I th- maybe the word isn't healthy. Maybe it's really happy or satisfied. I, I definitely find that people seem to be more satisfied if they do have some sort of mindfulness practice. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, the ego is really strong and anything and, and, and ultimately uh, one of, if you will, one of the things that happens when you do meditate for a long time is you um, can start to touch things that are beyond the ego, um, higher states of consciousness. You don't have to live there, but you can touch those little pieces and you can get there. Like I said, in so many different ways. Right. I mean, um, and so the, it is almost always like that conditioned mind. That's like, Ooh, I'm not going to do that. You know? And so you just, if you're aware enough, self-aware enough to go, well, where did that come from? Like, why do I have those thoughts? Like what is wrong with just sitting down and noticing my breath for five minutes a day? Yeah. Um, and so really, so long as you're a little bit open to just sitting and noticing your breath for five minutes, for example, and you'll start to notice benefits right away. Um, and, and then you can kind of, if you want to continue it, you can. Yeah. Um, there's different, um, terminology that I've heard used in connection to yoga and meditation and things like that. Could you explain to me what Ayurvedic is? If I'm saying that right. <laughs> you are. You are. Yeah. So Ayurveda is a, a full medical system. It evolved in India, we think at least 5,000 years ago. Uh, and it's, it, it's literally the science of life. And I think of it as the original lifestyle medicine. And so Ayurveda is um, very much so steeped in meditation and it's a consciousness-based health system. And so really we start to think of people as um being unified, but personally different, obviously, from one another. And when you look at um, health and healing, ultimately, the ultimate goal is to be in tune with nature. And so, and they're different, and, you know, and it's, you can break it down into a bunch of different ways. There are doshas, which are your specific mind body type. And so you would be more prone to do X, Y, or Z, for example, or feel X, Y, or Z. And you actually would find faster healing if you did X, Y, or Z. So it's really based on doshas. That's interesting. And I saw something about Deepak Chopra. Did you have training with him or his, um, his organization? Yeah. Yeah. That's really where all my training has been. And so both the Ayurveda lifestyle and the meditation teacher training. And I love uh, him. Yes. Yes. Have you ever been to any speaking events that he's done? I have, I've probably been to half a dozen or so. I love them. He seems like such a personable guy. Like you could just sit down and have a normal conversation with him. For sure. Did you ever meet him? I have, I have, but you know, um, very briefly in, you know, it was like, actually the last one was the last big, uh, meditation sort of retreat that, that he, that they did, which was here in Florida last February before COVID happened. Oh, that's cool. I can't wait till we can actually start going to things again, because I'd love to go to one of his events. Oh, you'll love it. Yeah. And can you help me out a little when I do, when I try to be more, I liked that expression you used earlier, plant heavy, not (laughs) not plant-based. You know, when I think plants, I just think salad, but I know there's so much more you can do with it. What do you eat? Like what's a typical day for you? Yeah, for sure. So mornings are usually like oatmeal, like steel cut oats and berries and cinnamon. That's, you know, generally what 
you know, what I eat. Lunch is usually, you know, there's also whole grains, right? Like we've got, you know, you've got quinoa, you've got kamut, you've got brown rice and all kinds of lentils. And so like, usually I will make (laughs) big bowls of these for lunch and my kids will take some, my husband will take some and I eat some. And so there's usually whatever veggies, and then there's a couple different sauces so they can, you know, make it their own. Um, and, and then dinner, you know, usually we'll have something that I can make in 40 minutes. Like that's my only goal. Like it's got to get done. And so it can be, it can be pasta, but it's usually like, you know, banza, which is, you know, made from chickpeas. Um, and then we can throw in some veggies in there and it's got tons of protein and fiber um, and, and you're good. It's whole grains. Um, or we'll make, you know, like a, a vegan chili, for example. So it's, you know, you kind of get through those rotations where you just sort of end up eating a lot of the same things. And I do joke about how much time I spend chopping vegetables for sure. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. And I'll go through phases where I'll roast vegetables too, but it just seems like it takes so long. (laughs) I know. I know it does. It does. I mean, sometimes I'll take some shortcuts and I'll, you know, I'll just get like frozen veggies and, you know, they're already ready to go and whatnot, but it's, it is definitely something to get used to for sure. And what about Thanksgiving tofurkey? Yeah, but you know, we've kind of even moved away from some of the tofurkey stuff too. Just, we just have really like these glorious half Indian, half, you know, sort of traditional kinds of meals. Well, that's nice that everybody in the house is vegetarian because I think it would be really hard if there was someone there, you know, eating pizza. Although, can you have pizza? Oh yeah. We make pizza all the time and we have pizza all the time. You know, even like, um, mellow mushroom, they have vegan cheese. So you load them up with veggies and they have a little option where you say, you know, I don't know what the butter and it tastes amazing. I'm going to try this stuff because if I can still satisfy the urge to eat those, those bad things, which I'm saying in finger quotes, that might, it might be really doable. Oh, it's so doable. It's just a matter of like trying what you like, right? Because everybody has a different palate. And so I have had good friends of mine, physician friends of mine who just go from eating the standard American diet to like this like crazy vegan, like no fat, no salt, you know, all veggie and it never lasts. And I'm like, don't, don't do that. Like, why don't you go easy and try things and be nice to yourself and like, just, just enjoy it. Food should be joyful. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's just kind of not knowing how not really having people like you around that are, you know, I can see what they're eating and all I'm thinking is, okay, I'm going to eat a big salad, but you can't live on that forever. That's just going to get boring. So maybe you should do a, some kind of cookbook or like plant-based eating guide or something like that. Yeah, for sure. I know people have told me that too. I've got to, first of all, Christine, I've got to start figuring out how to take like really pretty food pictures. Cause I make pretty food and then I'm like, take a photo. I'm like, ew. Yeah, I know. Right. It's got to look good <laughs> or no one's going to want to eat it. I find yeah. it's about lighting. And if you have an yeah. iPhone, it's all about the filters, right? That's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't given it more than two minutes thought, but it's definitely like, it's, it is, uh, it is one of the most common things that I have discussions about with my coaching clients too. So, um, I still have a couple questions for, before we wrap up, what would you like to see start trending a little more with medicine? I mean, I'm guessing more emphasis on mind body connection, but I'll let you answer the question. (laughs) 
Prevention, hands down, prevention, prevention hands down, uh, is really, you know, before we get to all these disease states, we've really got to start very early and really start to kind of stop outsourcing our health like stop outsourcing your health. This is your body. This is your mind. We really need to start to take control of that. What do you mean by outsourcing your health? Oh my gosh. So I don't have those kind of patients right now because of the way that I practice, but you know, in, in bread and butter family medicine, it was like, well, I don't want to stop eating my pint of ice cream. Give me a pill for that. I don't want to stop. Oh. I don't want to exercise. Give me a pill for that. You know, like that's outsourcing in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. I get what you mean. I actually had a, my dermatologist recently say to me, you know, people have to have discipline when we're talking about health. So, you know, if you have like, I get eczema and she had suggested that could be an inflammation issue. And she was saying in a very loving way that people really need to have discipline. So if you know that you need to manage your stress better because you're having health problems related to it, then it's incumbent on you to make sure that you do that. So I, I think that's really aligned with what you just said. Yes. Well, no pun intended, but that can be a tough pill to swallow. <laughs> Sorry, that was a really corny joke. But, um, you know, I think our culture has just gotten so accustomed to just putting, you know, taking a pill or have, you know, giving me a cream or whatever it is. And that's just going to fix it. That's right. Um, you know, it's it, it does take discipline and self-control to actually look forward and say, OK, well, if I do this, you know, if I eat all that pizza and cheese and dairy and all of that, then I'm just not going to feel very good. Right. Right. Yeah. So what kind of people are coming to you? I mean, there must be in a place where they're ready for that. They are. I have just the most delightful set of folks that I'm working with right now. And, you know, one of them is um, she's a, a Broadway director. Obviously, she's not directing anymore. So she's looking to write. And so she, we're really working with her on removing some blocks and limitations um, to really help her escalate her writing. Um, I've got folks who like I have a patient client who has had like a lifelong issue with anxiety and palpitations. And she's, you know, in, at like 61 right now. And in the last three months, she has completely, completely transformed uh, with mindfulness and meditation. And, you know, she no longer has these palpitations. They were thinking she even had a fib. I mean, she doesn't have any of those symptoms. Like, you know, you can start to see these really massive changes in people's lives. And so it's almost all women. I have like two men in there and I'm, you know, I'm accepting clients right now. And so really it's just for anybody that's, that's ready to get moving. Well, how can they reach out to you if they're interested in coaching with you? Yeah, my website, which is optimalwellnessmd.org. That's a great place to start. I'm on Instagram. Uh, I'm I'm on Facebook, not as active. And I have LinkedIn, not as active, but Instagram's kind of my go-to. Well, that's how I found you. Yes. And you responded. That's why you're here. Yes. <laughs> I was so thrilled. I'm so glad. I really enjoyed this. And, you know, it's really interesting that the doctors that I'm speaking to, I'm seeing more and more doctors that are not accepting insurance. And I think that's really interesting. I'm hoping that we trend more in, in that direction because, or that it forces the insurance companies to change their practices because it's pretty incredible that 
it, it does seem as though the insurance companies are the ones managing your care. You For know, sure. Saying you can't do this. You're not sick enough yet, which That's is right. not focused on prevention at all. You're not no. sick enough. You're not in enough pain to do that test. Um, and that's frustrating. I know for the doctors, but also for the patients. Absolutely. The insurance companies are in the driver's seat right now, 100%. And, you know, I don't know the numbers right off the bat, but you know, they're making billions and billions of dollars in profit. They do not have your best interest in mind at all. Well, as long as they're making that kind of money, I don't think there will be any incentive for them to change. That's right. I, I had suggested to somebody, you know, why don't all the doctors just, you know, band together and just stop taking insurance, but it will only work if everybody does it. So, um, I'm not sure that's ever going to happen. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're really trained to be very conformist through all of our training for sure. Well, so are lawyers. Yeah. Well, so are most people, right? That's true. It, it's it's the innovators and the outliers. They're the disruptors. You know, those are the people that change things. But I see you as one of them because you branched out. You're doing your own thing. You're not taking insurance and kudos to you. Thank you. I definitely see myself as a disruptor as well. I didn't initially, but absolutely. Stepping out of the system was the most terrifying thing I've ever done. Yeah. Well, if it's not uncomfortable, right, there's no growth, right? You're absolutely right. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this. I will be watching you on Instagram and I would love to do this again sometime, especially if there's something specific that you want to draw attention to. I'd love to do that. I'd love it too. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.